It is 10.07. It's the Gary Nolan Show. It is Think Tank Thursday. Uh, up in the queue now is the Show Me Institute. Uh, and uh, the uh, the breaking news is that Alec Baldwin uh, is being charged with manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, every state treats that differently. It could just be, uh, uh, you know, the, that he has to report to, a, you know, for parole or maybe he goes to jail i doubt it we'll see what happens but he has uh, he has uh, two charges of involuntary manslaughter uh against him uh in the meantime let's talk economics with uh, professor headland uh he is the chief economist at the show me institute uh and i know we've got really two topics but i want to start with the debt ceiling first because uh, we hit it today uh, some Republicans are looking for concessions. They want some cuts in spending. The main drivers of debt nobody will touch. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, or the military. Uh, so, Aaron, is it worth it for them to stand their ground and say we want some other cuts? Or, you know, and, and what will happen if we hold out? Hey, Gary. Well, I'd, I'd say there, there's two realities. Uh, and unfortunately, they're a little bit bitter to swallow. One is that the debt ceiling will have to be raised. There, there's no way to avoid it. it, will have to be raised. But then the second thing is that we really need to get out of this pattern of behavior. And the, the rhetoric we're hearing is really quite misleading. The rhetoric we're hearing is, oh, well, we've already spent the money, now we, you know, now we just have to pay the bill. And that's not quite accurate because there's a bunch of spending that's been recently authorized that hasn't actually gone out the door yet. So what really they should be pushing for is let's stop the spending that hasn't actually happened yet and and then reform this process. It's sort of like showing up to a restaurant and you're there in the middle. You show up you're in the middle of the meal. The people have ordered tons of stuff in the kitchen. You know it's going to max out your credit card. The very first thing you do is you don't call the credit card company to raise the limit. You instead cancel the stuff that was ordered before it was on the table. The stuff that's already on the table, yeah, you got to pay the bill. Um, I, I I don't. Even if they do that, it really isn't going to uh, eliminate the deficit. It's it's still going to go up um, year after year because nobody wants to ta- tackle the tough stuff. Um, but part of this could have been handled if the Democrats had uh, brought this up every you know every time they wanted to spend money, bring it up for a, a vote instead of waiting for the omnibus at the end of the year. Exactly. That's one of the reforms we need to pursue, which is that any time there's a spending bill that's going to create a deficit, the debt limit should be increased at the same time. And the reason for that is, is, is politics in the sense that people like to spend the money. The politicians like to spend it. And then they want to punt the actual pain of the bill part to later when it's very unpopular. So what should really happen is these things should happen at the same time so that if someone proposes creating more deficits, then right away they have to make clear to voters, yeah, the only way I can really do this is if we, if we increase the limit. And, of course, we can't do that indefinitely. And, and you're right that the, the really the main huge cost drivers, no one is really vocally talking about the need to reform some of these programs and put them on a more stable footing because ultimately we're not on a, on a sustainable path. Um, I'm not even sure. Under the circumstances and the way... We work our tax system, taxing productivity, et cetera. Uh, 
I'm not even sure that uh, you can reform them. Uh, there's no way to get out from under them as long as we have a FICA tax and an income tax and an excise tax uh, and everything else. Uh, it just strikes me as, uh, you know, we're on a, a, a ski slope and uh, we're heading for uh, for the bottom. I don't see how you stop it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the politics of what's feasible or not, but, I mean, these programs can always be reformed. I mean, we can, we can it really comes down to math. Like, we can look at the demographics for the population that's aging and the benefits that they're anticipating and then the generations behind those, the promises that they're currently being made, and compare that to the revenues, and we can just sort of see the imbalance and, and tackle that. And, and I'd say that, um, obviously, a head-in-the-sand approach that, the current political class is following doesn't work, but the idea that the only way to tackle the program, I say the leftist attack, which is that, oh, well, you're pushing grandma off a cliff, I mean, that that's totally wrong as well. There are ways that we can bring these things more into line. Uh, it, again, it comes down to math plus political will, and I know the math can work out. It really comes down to being creative enough to, to bring together political will. But you can't, you can't really fix Social Security unless you increase the national debt. Because no matter what well, you do, uh, it's going to result in an imbalance. We're either going to bring in more than we send out, or we're not going to bring in enough. There's no way to make it exactly right. So the government is going to take that extra money when you bring in more than you send out and put it in the Treasury and spend it. Right, and that's why I think that the solution should not entail increasing the tax burden on the American public. I mean, the tax, and in fact, if, if that were the only solution, if we wanted to leave the program untouched and just bring in more tax revenue, the first mathematical rumor to dispel is that you could do it all on, on the backs of the, the top 1% or the top 5%. That's not accurate at all. You would need to have very steep increases of taxes on the middle class to finance the programs as they currently are. So instead, let's take it back and, and look at the reality of the situation, which is that people are living way longer in retirement than they used to when the program was created. When Social Security was created, it was not intended to finance 25 years worth of retirement. So what we need to look at, for example, is some kind of way to alter retirement age. Now, it does not have to be across the board, because one fact of life is that uh, people who work in mining jobs and certain blue-collar jobs don't live as long as some other people. So there are ways to do it that uh, that don't kind of hurt those folks. But these are the sorts of things we need to talk about and really delve into the details. But unfortunately, it's, it's something that people would rather kick down the road. It's going to be it's going to be tough, uh, and some tough decisions are going to have to be made because in in a very short time, Social Security recipients are going to be getting. Uh, I think uh, somewhere around 25 or 30 percent less uh, on an annual basis than they're promised right now. And Medicare is in e even worse uh, shape. But we got other fish to fry, Dr. Hedlund. Let's look at Missouri's unemployment insurance. You've done a, a, a report on this. What did you find? Absolutely. So as many people in the country and in Missouri know, we are still in the midst of a labor shortage where there are way more job openings than there are unemployed workers to fill them. And we still have too many workers who are not even being counted as unemployed because they're just sitting on the sidelines and have given up. And, and, and why have they given up? Well, part of the reason they've given up is that they were out of the labor market for so long during COVID. Uh, we have, for a long period of time, had an unemployment insurance system that is not effective at getting people 
from the jobless line back into a into a job. And so what Missouri can do is take advantage of, I shouldn't say take advantage, but address the problem as we're currently facing it to get more of those people back. But I'd say there's a number of different issues with our system, one of which is how we finance it. It's financed by an unemployment tax that is the opposite of how you want to tax things. It's a very narrow base and a very high rate. So it, basically, it really discourages companies from taking on new workers. It's much more advantageous for a company if they want to expand to increase hours of existing workers rather than bringing on new people. So that makes it hard for people to get off the sidelines that way. Uh, there's also essentially an unemployment cliff, whereas if, if you are on benefits and you're still looking for that right job, but you let's say you find something part-time in the meantime, any dollar you earn on that job is going to be a dollar off your benefits. You really don't, there's no financial benefit to doing these sorts of things, so it means that you're going to be looking for a job for a longer period of time. And then there's unemployment insurance fraud. I mean, we could go down the list. The, the report that we put out on showmeinstitute.org goes into all these things and, and things Missouri can do to encourage work rather than government dependency. You know, I've seen studies uh, both here and abroad that indicated uh, that when, uh, when people were offered unemployment, they stayed on it until it was about to end. And then suddenly they found jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the implication, of course, is as long as I can get the free money and have a little bit of a vacation, I'll do it. But when the gravy train runs out, then I'll go out looking for a job. So I think uh, having unemployment insurance is a disincentive for people to get on their feet right away. And I also know from uh, my uh, years uh, running a tavern that, uh, you know, people, and this was in Cleveland, People would come in, uh, and I can think of one guy in particular that used to do this. He would say, uh, listen, uh, will you sign a paper that says I came in here looking for a job? Uh, so they could pretend they were out looking for a job when they weren't. Uh, the government running these insurance uh, programs, uh, it, it just seems problematic to me all the way down the road, Aaron. Yeah, and the job search requirements for this sort of thing are a joke. I mean, they're very hard to enforce. And, yeah, if you look in the data, people do... On, once you get close to benefit expiration, suddenly the job finding rate goes up a ton, which is why ideally, I mean, if you could really be bold, what would be really great is to move towards unemployment insurance accounts. And the way that would work is essentially instead of all of your paid, instead of the chunk of your paycheck just going to this unemployment insurance tax, uh, some of it would go to an account that you would own. And what would happen is that when any time you go into unemployment, the first dollars you draw would be from the account rather than immediately coming from taxpayers. And what that means, and then at retirement, if you have any account, if you have any money left over in the account, you just get that money. Yeah. So what that does is that creates an incentive for you to find a job quickly because you want to have as much as possible at retirement. And the insurance component would be if, for whatever reason, times are tough and your account draws down to zero, at that point, you can start getting benefits. But those first dollars, you'd have much more incentive to be uh, looking for a job. Yeah, and it, it would also be nice if you could uh, have it somewhere where it accrues interest uh, rather than just sitting idly in the coffers of the state. Absolutely, yes. Makes, makes sense to me. All right, Dr. Aaron Hedlund, uh, you've got this uh, report, and it is up at the Show Me Institute. Uh, can you give people a little bit uh, more direction on how to find it? Yeah, so everyone can go to showmeinstitute.org and the reports on there, as well as a lot of the other content we're putting out. 
All right. Dr. Aaron Hedlund, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, it is, uh, and that's the Show Me Institute, showmeinstitute.org. Uh, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. He's got a bunch of story, uh, studies uh, or court cases. Uh, Supreme Court is rejecting Missouri's challenge to uh, tax cut rule in COVID aid bill and more. That's all coming up in oh, about an hour from now on the Gary Nolan Show. Zimmer Radio Network. Probation. That's my guess. It's 23 minutes after 10. Glad to have you with us on the Think Tank Thursday. Ron Calzone is going to be with us, MoFirst.org. And uh, to tell you the truth, um, if you want to know what's going on in Jeff City, that's the one website you really got to go to. Uh, he wants to talk about IP reform bills that are coming up in the Missouri legislature. Uh, the focus seems to be only change the threshold uh, for voters to ratify or adopt proposed amendments to the Constitution. Uh, so we'll touch on that in a few minutes with, uh, with him. Uh, in the meantime, Baldwin could apparently get 18 months in prison. Uh, Alec Baldwin uh, in the Rust uh, movie set, he's been charged uh, with manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter, I believe. Uh, but, but the point here is they're probably not going to do that. They're probably just going to, you know, give him probation and let him go. My question is, would probation be enough? Uh, I don't particularly care for this guy. He's an okay actor. Uh, but, I, you know, his politics make me not want to watch him in a movie. And, and as much as I dislike him based on that, I'm not sure that prison time would be fair um i don't I know so do many think? questions about this yeah i mean it, first of all how did a live gun end up on a movie set yeah live I, ammo i mean yeah. what can you imagine what would happen if uh the john wick movie said okay all you actors got uh, live guns and but don't shoot anybody just uh you know have them on set just I, yeah, come on, guns. how did it ever end up on the set? Is anyone going to explain? Well, the armor is going to be charged as well, and should be. It, it, it's my understanding that they have a couple of different types of rounds that they use. The guns are generally real, but they have um, a round that looks like a regular bullet, but when you shake it, it rattles. There's no gunpowder in it, and it will not fire. Uh, they've got another round, I think, that uh, just shoots a wad. It's a, a, a blank, uh, and they use that. Um, it, it, and those, when you're shooting and pointing a gun at people, are all that should be allowed anywhere near the set. And because of my training, I never want to point a gun at anybody. I think there's all kinds of photographic uh, uh, tricks that they could use. Uh, so yeah, that you they don't can have digitize to, everything nowadays. Yeah, there's bring got a CGI, plastic gun but, out there, and you but know. different angles um, can be uh, you know can be used to make it look as though you're pointing the gun at the bad guy. Uh, and and I think those uh, probably you, you know that, that that's where I would go with this. I don't I don't think you should ever point a gun at anybody. Don't point a gun at anybody unless you intend to, you know, sh shoot them. Uh, and that's part of the problem. 
The armor who's supposed to make sure there are no live rounds is partly responsible. Um, Baldwin as the producer, uh, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he's the producer of the show. Uh, so he would be uh, partly accountable for this. And he did, and I don't know if he lied on purpose or if he just, you know, was his cage was so rattled he didn't know what happened. But he said he didn't pull the trigger, that it just went off on its own. But when they tested the firearm, they couldn't get it to do that. The only way it would go, uh, that it would fire, was if somebody pulled the trigger. So maybe he got excited, doesn't quite know what happened, uh, and that was his mistake. Uh, maybe he pulled the trigger, and he knows he pulled the trigger, but he doesn't want to admit it. I don't know. That's, that's for the courts to decide. But I don't think he intended to kill anybody. And I'm not sure that putting him in prison is really going to change anything. But I'm going to leave it up to you. You can give me a call, 800-529-5572, 874-9390, and tell me where you come down on this. We'll cover this on Carry On Guns, by the way, on Saturday morning. But I'm thinking putting him in prison for a year and a half. How does that, what does that do? You may fine him. Uh, to try and, and uh, compensate uh, the families uh, for the harm that was done. You may put him on probation, kind of watch and make sure he doesn't do it again, but what are the odds of that? But prison, I just see that as wasting taxpayer money. Brian, should he go to jail? or No, I don't think so, but I definitely would, uh, as part of the punishment, uh, make sure that he goes to a gun safety course Uh you know, so he understands from this point forward that you never do what you did, period, ever. You killed someone. Who's more responsible in your mind, him or the armor? I would say both. It's like a 50-50. I would First say the all, armor is, is more... Uh, well, I mean, he picked the, up the gun. Apparently he knew it. I mean, would you fire a blank at someone? No. No, of course you, not. Yeah, but you're he close thought, enough. oh, they're blanks. They're, it's going to be harmless. And I think... This is my opinion speaking. I think he pulled the trigger thinking, oh, it's just going to make a noise and that's it. And he turns out that there was live ammo in there. And, and it was the job. It was the, the sole job of the armor yes, to make sure that didn't happen. And it did happen. That's why I think the armor is even more responsible. I think she is guilty um, and she should never have that job again. I mean, I wouldn't hire her. No, for that. Um, it, it's it's a it's a tragedy all the way around. It could have been prevented. Lesson here is never ever point a gun at anybody, whether you're making a movie or you're dry fire practicing at home, uh, or you're just looking at your firearm to make sure it's clean. Never point a gun at anybody. That's the lesson to be learned. Uh, all right, uh, so we've got uh, MoFirst.org, Ron Calzone. He's going to be on board. Initiative petitions. How do we reform that? What is the, uh, what is the movement in Jeff City? We'll kick it all around next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. Coming up in about 45 minutes, Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. Uh, Mo He's going to be on board several Supreme Court cases that you'll want to hear about. 
but before we uh, get to our uh, next guest, uh, we have the news god, Brian Houseworth, on board. Breaking news out of Jeff City. Brian, good morning. Hey, uh, thank you so much, Gary. We have had a bank robbery, and I've been able to confirm that with Jefferson City Police Chief Eric Wilde. A busy area with a lot of lawmakers in town. A lot of people see this. This is at the River Region Credit Union in Jefferson City. Gary, on West Truman, right across from the Fairfield Inn, where a lot of lawmakers stay, and just uh, down the street from High V. I just got off the phone moments ago with Police Chief Eric Wilde. He tells me this is at 3608 West Truman. River Region Credit Union, an armed robbery at about 9 o'clock this morning. There is no suspect or suspect information at this time. It is under investigation. Jefferson City Police are on scene. Anyone who has any information or may have seen something, and we believe we know some people have seen it because they called here to the station, maybe seeing uh, a possible robbery. Uh, you're urged to call Crime Stoppers in Jeff City, 573-659-TIPS, uh, or you can call the Jefferson City. Police, but again, uh, they're looking for a suspect or suspects. We don't have any details on that, and no injuries are reported. River Region Credit Union in Jeff City, West Truman, robbed this morning. Gary, do we have any indication of height, weight, race, uh, gender, uh, anything? We do not. I did try to get that information. It's just so very early. The chief did not have any of that information, but they are on scene going through things. And if we get any updates on that, we'll let you know. But at this point, no, um, nothing like that. Last question, uh, die pack explode, anybody? No, no details on that. I'm not aware of anything like that. Um, John Marsh, uh, my colleague, um, had a caller that said that they believe the man was running from the bank. Now, I've not been able to confirm that, but nothing like that. I'm not aware of any details on that. And e even if it did happen, I don't think the police would probably tell us that. Stay tuned to this station for more information. Uh, Brian Houseworth, thank you for being on uh, on with us this morning and thank getting you, us up to date. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Ron Calzone, who's, well, he runs on his feet, too. Uh, he is with us. Uh, petition in, initiative. Uh, what are they looking I'm, at I'm, doing, I'm, Ron? I'm, in but, Gary, the, the, big, the biggest difference, though, between me and that situation is, is I'm usually running from the robbers. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't get far enough away from the state. Yeah, you know, it's, it strikes me that it's how, you know, what, it's it's breaking news when someone, an individual, one person um, robs a bank and, you know, got, you know, I don't know what they likely got, five or ten or twenty thousand dollars. But every day we've got a building full of legislators that are robbing the people of Missouri millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, what, what gets people more excited? And, yeah, and I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> we we pay them to do that too. That's even worse. That's right. Yeah, we even pay them to do it. But uh, so I, I so-called IP reform. Yeah, uh, is the topic at hand. Well, so the uh, the thing that's kind of interesting is is that finally I think after twelve to fourteen years of people saying we have a problem with the initiative petition process and we've got to somehow take that right away from the people. Uh, the right to uh, petition their neighbors and ask that something be put on the ballot just so that the question can be asked, shall we amend the Constitution? Rather than focusing on that, the focus does seem to be changing to the ratification half of the question. You know, so you can, the one half of the question is the petition that asks the voters, shall we change the Constitution? And the other half of the equation is the answering of that question. Yes, we should, or no, we should not adopt this amendment to the Constitution. And finally, the focus seems to be shifting to the second. And, and just how many Missourians or what percentage of Missourians or what 
what felt formula should be used to amend the fundamental law of the land. And that seems to be, uh, to me, that's a positive change in direction uh, because it's already way hard for a true citizen-driven initiative to make it to the ballot. Yeah, you got to have a lot of money uh, to get that uh, to get that done, uh, as I lot, as I well know. Yeah, a lot of money or a tremendously well organized uh, grassroots effort that is, is that takes still takes a lot of investment, whether it's in cash or time, and it's very 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 hard to do, and it should be hard to do, but it shouldn't be impossible, and it shouldn't only be available to the people that have a pile of money, and so. Um, it, that's a that's a positive development. I don't know what your opinion is, but I do think that the idea that we can change the fundamental law of the land, the, the state constitution, with a simple majority vote is problematic. What do you think? I, you know, it's so hard to uh, to figure out where to draw the line, but I don't think it should be harder to get it on the ballot. Um, I just think it should be harder to pass, and I think that we, you know, clearly the way we're doing this um, is wrong. I, uh, well, so, so, you know, there are a handful of different approaches to this. Some of them are more nefarious than others. But this is what my question for you and for your listeners. Should the standard for adopting a proposed amendment to the Constitution, the state Constitution, should the standard be any different whether the proposal is proposed by the legislature or proposed by the people through an initiative petition? So some of the, the considerations out there are that you leave it a simple majority when the legislature says, ask the question, shall we amend the Constitution? But you raise the bar to 60% or two-thirds vote. Yeah, no. If it's no, it should be the same for both. So, so do you find it very offensive to, you know... Yes, I think it's somewhat arrogant uh, for the state uh, legislature to make it easier for them to accomplish their goal uh, and, and not for the citizens who are motivated um, to change the, uh, change the law. Well, the argument would be in favor of having a different standard that the legislature spends a lot of time deliberating and looking at all of the pros and the cons of any given amendment. Well, that's and, good you know, for them, have, but I think the majority of us, well, we are the ones that have to understand the amendment and make up our minds, and enough of us have to be aware of what's in, uh, you know, what's in that, uh, in the writing. Uh, so it doesn't make a difference that they're better prepared to, uh, to uh, initiate this move it's me. I've got to be prepared. I've got to understand it. Enough of us have to understand it to make the right decision. Well, uh, and, and, I, and I agree with that, but I would also add to that that there's really not as much deliber deliberation as you might think going on in that, that big, beautiful building up there on the hill. It's, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is we have a very, very top-down power structure, and that power structure invites uh, special interest to have undue influence on what happens in the building. And so you, you just cannot assume that something that's proposed by the legislature has actually gotten the proper kind of due deliberation that you might think it would, you know, given a different power structure. 
So, um, so of course, I'm in total agreement with you. I think it is. I think it, it will be viewed as an arrogant move. But what do your listeners think? What do you think your li- listeners think? Now, my guess is that uh, they would agree with us that it it should be the same. Uh, the same bar should be uh, for both uh, legislative and uh, IP, uh, IP. But the fact is that we've. I mean, it really is a mess the way we're doing it now and the constitution has been altered so many times uh, I, it's almost it, it all, I, I almost think we ought to start from scratch well you know the voters had a chance to do that in November uh, they were asked shall we hold a constitutional convention and, and if they said yes then a convention would convene with delegates that were selected by a pre-prescribed very scary process and they would have had an opportunity to rewrite the Constitution and present to the voters uh, a complete replacement. Uh, that complete replacement right now would just take a simple majority vote. So 50% plus one voter, and we could have an entirely new Constitution. And, uh, and one of the things that concerns me a little bit as, a, as an outstate drive-through country Missourian is, is that the urban centers could make that decision for the rest of us with a 50% vote. Yeah, uh, something's something's rotten in Denmark here. Let me get uh, let me get uh, let's get Martin on in Edgar Springs. I think he was last in, but he'll be first out. Martin, welcome. How are you? Hi, uh, thanks, Gary. Um, I'm not sure um, how the IMP because uh, uh, I know I've talked with you guys before about it. I'm from Florida originally, and in Florida, to pass a constitutional amendment at the for the state constitution of Florida, you have to have a 60% majority there. So you have to have a 60%. And it's really funny the way it was done. It was uh, because of what's called in Florida the Pregnant Pig Amendment. It was passed in 2002. And because of that, the state legislature there said, we've got to do something because we're not going to have frivolous uh, legislation uh, floating in our constitution. So, because of that, they uh, upped it to sixty percent. Now, I think um, when I looked at uh, Ron Calzone's uh, thing on his website, the way that they distribute it among, I think he said like the uh, state house districts or something like that. That's a that's a really good idea because then Amendment Three would have had to have had more of a consensus from the entire population, not just the uh, urban cities. But we definitely need to, do, we need to do something. And I think if we raise the threshold on the constitutional amendment, but we lower it on the statute-like proposition, I think that's how you guys say it, then I think you would have a lot better idea on what the people want. Well, the caller's got some great great insight gary so one of the dynamics right now is is that it takes the same vote to ratify a statute change as it does a constitutional change and so somebody that wants to spend the time and the money um, and the energy putting something on the ballot obviously is going to prefer to put it in the constitution where it can't be tinkered with by the legislature uh... so you you do want to make it harder to put something in the constitution than you do um, in the statutes, and so that's that is a change that I think everybody agrees on. We will see uh, pushing that area, but he also um, reveals, I think, 
it has exposed what I think our preference is, and that is is a two stage ratification requirement. Uh, you should have to have a majority vote statewide, but you should also have to have a majority vote of citizens in more than half of the state's 163 house districts. Yeah. So you would have. So that would require a a geographic concurrence to ratify an amendment to the Constitution, and that would apply whether or not it was proposed by the legislature or the initiative petition process or a constitutional convention. Jason says uh, the legislature is elected by the people of the state to pass an amendment to the Constitution of Missouri. It makes sense to have a lower threshold for the same thing that was passed by the legislature. They were already elected by us to do our bidding. And, you know, that does make that there's a lot of logic behind that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're not really properly represented by the people that we elect. As we discussed last week, with the kind of rules that you have in the House and the Senate, and especially the House, you have this top-down power structure where you have just one or two elected officials that are making the agenda for everybody else. And... You know, the problem is, is not even their constituents have influence on them because the reason that you get to be Speaker of the House is you raised a bunch of money, and that money didn't come from your constituents. It came from special interests. So uh, I, I agree with his logic on the surface, but in practice, that's not really what's happening. You really cannot trust that the people that you elect are re- properly representing you, which is, again, another reason that you need to have a healthy, available initiative petition process. All right, and on, the legislature is is either unresponsive or they're oppressive. On that happy note, I am up against the clock. Gotta gotta run. Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. All right, for our work day. Hmm. That's next. It's uh, ten fifty four. Dave Rowland is coming up. We got uh, several Supreme Court cases that are. Uh, Worthy of note, uh, they're going to decide whether uh, Postal Service can punish uh, Sabbath-observing letter carriers. Uh, The Supreme Court has rejected a Missouri challenge to uh, tax cut rule in COVID-19 aid bill. uh, And two more cases, and, and we'll get into that a little later on. He'll be with us about 20 minutes from now. In the meantime, a couple of stories that I want to get to. We were talking about... Davos and global warming and all of that. Uh, there is a, a Roy Spencer. He's a Ph.D., a principal research scientist, University of Alabama in Huntsville. Talking about uh, global warming, he published what is described as a groundbreaking study demonstrating that 36 climate models used to guide national policy may have exaggerated global warming over the last 50 years by as much as 50%. Specifically, uh, Dr. Spence utilized a relatively new global data set of urbanization changes over the last 40-year period. We know from satellite data that it's not the same. They're, they're not getting the same temperatures they are on Earth. The uh, thermometers on Earth that they're using are getting a different reading than the satellites. Satellites are saying, no, this, this just isn't happening. Uh, but apparently, because of the urban heat island effect, 
and I've explained this in the past, but if you're not aware of it, you have lots and lots of blacktop. You have air conditioners with uh, that are blowing warm air outside. You've got uh, you know heat generated in the winter that in the middle of the woods or you know in the middle of nowhere you wouldn't experience. Well, that data uh, apparently is throwing things off. Uh, Spencer's point is that observed increases in temperature result from the greater heat urbanization uh, generation uh, generates, uh, and not from increased CO2 concentrations generated in the atmosphere by burning hydrocarbon fuels. Spencer was able to achieve this result by eliminating the negative urban heat island bias from the uh, NOAA temperature database to get more truthful readings of the CO2 heat-forcing effect. Wait a minute. It, when you take that into consideration, it's at least half. At least half. And when you consider that, you know, temperatures around the globe have always, the climate has always varied. There were cooler and warmer periods that went on for years, decades, hundreds of years even. It makes sense that this argument about CO2 and Gore, uh, the, the, the argument Gore is making at Davos, is all a bunch of crap. You lefties out there who are ruining life for everybody, including yourselves, are doing it based on junk science. I mean, it's, it's a load of Bravo Sierra. You have battery-powered cars and getting rid of gas stoves and uh, all of the other nonsense that you're proposing. Windmills and, and solar panels. It isn't even really a reflection of the current temperature trends. You're doing this for nothing. It's become a religion to you. You've been convinced uh, by these people who want to take American dollars and give them to third world countries that we are causing global warming. You've driven up the price of, of heating a home. And all for nothing, you idiots. Good God. Dave Rowland coming up in about 20 and working a four-hour workday. Oh, Brian does that now. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm almost up to four hours. That's next on the Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show.